Thank you, worship team, and welcome to you. If we haven't gotten a chance to say hello today, if we've met before, I'm Rob. If we haven't met, I'm still Rob, or the other way around. But we've been in this series in December looking at the most popular Christmas carols and what they teach us about this God who came to us in the person of Jesus. And today I'll be touching and introducing one final carol. This carol is one of the most exuberant, and popular and beloved Christmas carols of all time, but it actually never was intended to be a Christmas carol. The song in question is arguably Isaac Watts' most famous work. Isaac was born in 1674 in Southampton, England. He was raised by a deeply religious and rather rebellious family. Isaac's first memories of his parents was his father's deep love for Jesus, and also these firm convictions about religious liberty. For some reason, Watts Sr. openly objected to the king or queen of England being the supreme authority in the church as well. So he openly went against that, and even on Watts's birth was in jail when he was born. He was jailed two times, actually, that Watts remembers, or that Isaac remembers. Like most young people, Isaac found the church music of his day monotonous and joyless. But unlike most of the young people of his day who kept quiet about their real feelings, Watts decided to make his feelings known. He complained bitterly to his father every week. His father would listen for a few minutes, but then he, he would just turn to him and t- challenge him to create something better. And it was that challenge combined with Watts' passion for rhyme and poetry that he created more than 600 hymns in his lifetime and hundreds of other poems. Now, most of his work during his life was actually met with contempt. For some reason, people in England were not interested in having new translations of the scriptures, new uh, music for worship, or new challenges to their faith. But that didn't stop him. His education and efforts led him to a large independent church in London where he quickly earned a reputation for an orator and a preacher and became a private tutor, mentoring others in the church in London. Isaac accessibly sought ways to articulate his Christian affection and conviction through song so that others could join him in heartfelt worship. And think about it. He, in 1674, he was born... And almost 300 years later, actually over 300 years later, we still sing many of his songs today. Blending, he, he masterfully blended personal reflection with emotional reaction and theological conviction. And in 1719, he published a hymn book of rewritten psalms for congregational singing. He took the psalms that were all too familiar in the English and the Latin, and he instead twisted them into rhyme and poetry in a way that gave them new life for the minds and mouths of English worshipers. And it's in that collection that we find Watts' rework of Psalm 98, titled, Joy to the World. Psalm 98 says, Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. By his right hand and his holy arm, we have worked salvation for him. He has worked salvation. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. 
He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. And all to the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song and with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp. And with the harp and the sounds of singing. With the trumpets and blast of the ram horn. With shouts for joy to the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound in everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. But he will judge the earth in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Joy to the Lord. Joy to the world. Excuse me. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart Prepare him room. It's, it's like Watts joined with the angels when they said in Luke 2, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all peoples. Today in David's town, a Savior has been born. He is the Messiah, Christ the Lord. And you will find this baby wrapped in strips of cloth and lying in a manger. The Word of God became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son. Who came from the father. Full of grace. And truth. Now. If you're a young person. You've like. We've been sitting for a long time already. So you were given some. Um, some little. Maybe puppets. Or finger puppets. And minor. A little bit bigger. So you can see them. But we'll be using these during the little talk today. So first we have the angel who comes and announces that the Messiah will be born and he announces them to shepherds. So, of course, we got sheep as well. Yeah, that works. Right there. That's a trombone too. And the birth of Jesus is good news for great joy for all people, except when it's not. See, Often I meet people, and occasionally the person I meet is me, that doesn't feel the joy. That actually it's hard to live into the joy, not just at Christmas, but all year. It's like I miss the glory, or the grace, or the truth. Have you ever been there? You're just being polite, I'm sure. But... If this is something that's hard for you, I think the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and this hymn of God can help us find and live that joy, not just today, but all year long for the whole world. So let's just look at a few of these stanzas of the hymn. It starts with this phrase, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Now, when I sang that as a kid, I remember being at the late service, at least as late as we could go when I was younger, and I would go, man, this person does not know their English. It's the Lord has come. It's not the Lord is come. But that's exactly what Watts meant. The Lord is come is this present future event. It was never a past event for him. And I think we lose our joy when we just relegate the Lord to our past. I mean, you might be someone who says, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. But what you mean is, well, one time, one day, way long ago, I prayed a prayer, I confessed my sins, and I asked Jesus to be my Savior, but 
day to day, today, he doesn't really influence my life. Or, you know, you might be in a place where you'd say, well, I used to believe in Jesus, but then I got educated and grown up. My view of the world was expanded, of which I can sort of understand, but it's almost like you're saying then your education that was in your present and future got to expand you, but you never let Jesus be a part of that present and future in a way that he could be expanded. I mean, Hebrews 13.8 says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which doesn't mean that he never changes, that he's some fixed object or historical artifact, but it actually means that his character and attributes is unchanging or are unchanging. But see, when God first introduces himself, at least when someone first dares to ask his name, it's in Exodus 3, he's in this encounter with Moses, and Moses says, if I go to the people and they ask who sent me, who should I say you are? And God replies, well, I am who I am. Now, in Hebrew, because that would have been the original Exodus story would have been written in Hebrew, there's not a past, present, and future text tense of verbs. There's only a perfect, which is completed, and an imperfect, which means not yet completed. Okay, We won't go here very long, but you're smart. You can do this. So, which is why your, your Bible, if you actually open it up to this, it might say, I will be who I will be. Which totally clears it up, right? But what God is saying is, the best way to describe who I am is that I'm a not yet completed verb. Which I take to mean my character and my attributes are unchanging. But I will be whatever I need to be for any situation. I'm always changing, always moving, always becoming. And that's who Jesus ties himself to when he talks about his whole life. I am the bread of life. He says in John 6, or I am the light of the world, he says in John 8, or I am the good shepherd, I am God's son, both in John 10, or I am the resurrection and I am the life, John 11, I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14. All along the way, Jesus is always connecting who he is to who God is, and he's always becoming, he's always on the move, which is completely different than us. Meaning God never refers to himself in the past tense. And I think the older we get, the more we're tempted to do this. Because I was faster, stronger, and better looking at one point. Maybe you were too. I think we have a tendency to reminisce about where we've been, what we've achieved, or how good things used to be. And we get stuck in this past tense, not just in our own life, but also in our relationship with God. And then we struggle to find and live the joy, and we wonder why. Part of finding and living that joy at Christmas is meeting Jesus in our present and future. Imagine what your new year could look like if you met Jesus, this one who will be who he will be every moment of every day 
next year. I think the second reason we miss our joy or it's hard to find and live it is found in this second stanza. Let earth receive her king. Which brings me to think like, how well do you receive? I'm great at it. You should try it. Um, Give me a gift later. No, but I think we all have this gift from Christmas past. It might have been handmade or store-bought. It might have been picked out with great care or not so much. But it's this gift that isn't exactly what we hoped for or wanted to receive. Do you have one? Yes, you do. I see that. Well, uh, I'll just share one of my gifts that I gave. And I made the mistake of buying my bride an appliance. And I'm not talking like a brand new, beautiful refrigerator, because that is a gift that we'll keep on giving. I'm talking something that, you know, you'd go, oh. But, but at the time, it was what she really, really wanted, and I hope I get this right, because if you ask her later what the worst gift was, and it's not this, then I'm going to feel really bad and like mud all over my face, because there'll be two bad gifts. But it was, she was really, really hoping for this big, fancy, expensive KitchenAid mixer, you know, the ones that you see on Cupcake Wars, or um, Nailed It, or Sugar Rush, or whatever cooking show you watch, and it's this beautiful machine that's sitting out on this perfectly organized counter where the baker has all the pre-measured ingredients sitting out and they're just effortlessly combining things together and then the machine the the little you know stainless steel motor comes to life and the flat blade slowly stirs the stuff without you ever breaking a sweat one of those that's what she wanted those are really expensive and we were really young and poor So, I thought, as long as it's close, then the joy will be really close. So, I had a gift that, you know, was a little smaller than that, and she unwrapped it, and this is what she got. I mean, ta-da! Remember that one, right? Yeah, she does. Mm Mm-hmm. It is not the same joy as the big one that sits on a table that you can barely lift up there. And she did what one does when you receive a gift like this. Oh, thanks. Wow. You shouldn't have. Really. Now, in my case, it was a bad gift. My awesome wife did not deserve a not-so-awesome gift. But in the real Christmas story, we're offered a Savior, and we don't receive the precious gift. It's like we offer thanks, but we don't receive. Matthew tells us that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judah, during the time of King Herod, that Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, where's the one who is born king of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose in the east, and we have come to worship him. And King Herod and all of Jerusalem was disturbed. 
I always wondered about the disturbed, and I read one scholar who noted that the Magi would have, at minimum, traveled with a full military escort and all of their servants. So likely, it would have been at least 300 people. So as they march into Jerusalem, they look more like the Thanksgiving Macy's Day Parade than just three guys on a camel ride. I mean, it is a big scene. So, if you've got your guys, there's my wise men. Probably shouldn't put it in front of the angel. They traveled an incredible distance over dangerous roads. They spent months preparing and large amounts of money to actually get to their destination. And when you think about it, why? He wasn't their king. They weren't from that country. And when they found him, he probably didn't look like much of a king at all. He was probably an infant, baby, or toddler that was playing on the floor of an unimpressive house in an insignificant town. But yet, what we find out is their gifts, their efforts, and their reaction all tell me that they recognized and received that gift. Matthew tells us that they left overjoyed, praising God. And when we do that, we are well on our way to joy. If we can not just offer thanks for Jesus, but actually receive him. And finally, I think the third reason we miss the joy is found in the third stanza. Let every heart prepare him room. So how good are you at preparing room? See, during the holidays, I always find that people show up at my house more often than normal. Does that happen to you guys too? Sometimes it's a package then we're kind of excited to receive. Sometimes it's spontaneous and welcomed interruption to our day. And then, you know, come on in. And then sometimes, you know, it's not. And I know when I'm on the receiving, like when I'm on the giving end of this, I'll go up to someone's door and they usually look back in the house and then say, oh, well, why don't you come in out of the cold? And they let me in a few feet and they, then they stand a few feet away and they're offering me some space and I unzip my coat and we start a friendly conversation and it might be warm and they're not being rude. This is just the amount of space that they have to give right now. And that's fine, and I go, but it's very different from someone who's prepared room. And if you've ever had, I know not all of you know them, but if you've ever had the chance to have dinner with the Buchelmans, then you know what it means to prepare room for them. Because when you walk in their house, they offer this warm greeting and, oh, put your coat on the coat rack and your shoes right underneath and come on up and what would you like to drink? And then we walk upstairs and why don't you have a seat in the living room? We're just finishing up preparations. And so then this beautiful conversation starts and hobbies and interests and connections start happening. And then they pull out the meal and it's the most amazing thing ever, and then when you just feel like you can't eat anymore, they pull out this dessert that you swear is off of the heavenly menu that they stole from the angels, and then you eat that, and then as you're leaving, you feel like, even if you just met these people, they're a long-lost family that you can't wait to come back to. That's kind of what it means to prepare him room. And Luke 2 says that while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. 
And she gave birth to a son, her firstborn. And she wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room available for them. Mary and Joseph show up in town and there's no room. Ever seen a nativity scene like that one? <laughs> I've often wondered why there was no room. And scholars and historians have debated this for a long, long time. But I saw a sign last week that just hit me. And it looked like this. Middle Eastern family seeking refuge. Would you open your home? I mean, if a young, poor, pregnant family who likely couldn't pay you back, who really wouldn't help you climb the social ladder, but they needed a place to stay, I think it'd be easy to overlook them. So way to go, St. Mark's. I think it's St. Mark's Church for, you know, thinking of that. Because I think it's possible that the people who met Mary and Joseph simply overlooked them. They really didn't recognize them. And even if they did, notice my wonderful scene here. Jesus is just on the fringes. You never see Jesus on the fringes of a nativity. But again, we find or we have trouble finding and keeping the joy. Because I think that's what we do with our life. We put Jesus on the fringes and then we wonder why during the year and during Christmas we don't have more joy. It's because we haven't really made room for him. If we want to truly, truly welcome him into our life, the only way we're going to be able to do that is to accept who he was, who he is, and who he's going to be. We've got to just take everyone else out first and every other thing And put him in the center. And then fit those other pieces of our life that God really does want us to have around. And when you put Jesus in the center and wisdom stays, God's voice seems to stay loud and clear. To welcome him is to accept him, who he is, who he was, who he will be, and to receive him is to prepare room for him and put him in the center. This is the way to lasting joy. And this is what Christmas is all about, that the God of the universe came to us to be with us he loved us so much, like Matthew already said, he left heaven and came. God gave his first and his best to make a way for us, for us to spend eternity with him. This is why the people say, the angel said, that we will give him the name Jesus. Yeshua, God is salvation because he will save the people 
from their sins. Because the Prince of Peace knew that in order to achieve peace on earth, he needed to take on a crown of thorns rather than a crown of gold. Then he needed to be in that royal line of David, not to be this conquering king, to defeat Rome or any other worldly power, but to actually defeat the sinister evil behind that earthly power. He had to suffer and give his life to defeat that evil. That is what brings overflowing joy for the whole world. And more than anything else, what God wants for us is to respond to his gift, his gift of salvation and of life. We are all sinners. We could argue about how much we're sinners, but we're all sinners. And we all need a Savior. That's why Jesus came, born of a virgin, without sin, to be that perfect sacrifice for each and every one of us. All you have to do is say, I need a Savior. I need his presence. And when you do, not only get overflowing joy, you get eternal life. Would you pray with me? God, as we consider what it means that you came to us, I just thank you for all the quirks and interesting parts of the story, for wise men that came and traveled miles, but a king who sought to end your life for poor husband and wife that didn't know how they were going to make room for you, but somehow you made a way. To shepherds who really couldn't even testify in court. They were the bottom of society and they were the first to know. God, all through the story, there are so many layers. We could spend hours talking about it, but today I just pray that we would really think about what it means that you are the Prince of Peace that you made a way to us by giving yourself. God, I pray that we would consider what it means to make room for you today, to put you in the center of our life, to say that we can't do it on our own, that we need a Savior, that we want eternal life, that we want life with you, and that we receive peace and love and overflowing joy. God, we want to live that all year long. So would you speak to us about what is in the way? Is it that we're living in the past? Or is it that, that we're not really receiving you, we're merely acknowledging you? Or is it that we're trying to fit you on the fringes? God, speak to us. Amen.